Thanks to ZipRecruiter, which is the presenting sponsor of Recode Decode and The Smartest Way to Hire, running a business is full of tough calls. One of the biggest, hiring. Finding the right people to keep your business moving and growing isn't easy, but ZipRecruiter has found a way to streamline the process. Their powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to actively find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So if you're hiring, it's time to get smart. Try ZipRecruiter for free right now at ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash decode. Today's show is brought to you by Secret Clinical Strength Antiperspirant. Let's clear a few things up. Number one, it's not actually a secret. You can tell anyone about it. Two, it's clinically strong, which means it's good at preventing sweat, like twice as good as regular antiperspirant. That's why it's on the top shelf. Three, strength is a cool word. You really don't see a ton on women's deodorant packaging, so Procter & Gamble was like, sure, let's shake things up. Four, sweating is the worst. Four and a half, not sweating is great, which is why you should buy Secret Clinical Strength Antiperspirant. That's Secret Clinical Strength Antiperspirant. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the person who tricked every venture capitalist into wearing those stupid puffy vests back in the day, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, I'm delighted to have Sarah Karouche and Matt Maud in the studio. They're the directors of the new documentary called General Magic, which is about a pioneering tech company of the same name, which really started Silicon Valley in a lot of ways. You may not know about it, but you should. Sarah and Matt, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you, Kara. So uh, talk to me about this project because it, we, I, I'm, in, I'm in the movie. Let me just, just full disclosure, I'm in the movie because <laughs> I'm a genius about these things. Um, but it's an astonishing story. I want to give a background of what General Magic is, one of you. Either one of you. General Magic um, spun out of Apple to make essentially what was the first smartphone. Right. And John Scully famously said it's, you know, the the, the most famous company or the most important company in Silicon Valley that nobody's ever heard of. Mm -hmm. And so it was this incredible team of people that went on to build that thing that we use every day that everyone has in their pockets. Right. But we don't know about it because they had, first, they went through what was a spectacular failure Mm -hmm. before the people who worked there went on to, you know, build the Android and the iPhone and eBay and work uh, CTO for Obama. So I yeah. wanted to do extraordinary things. So let's talk a little bit about the background of it because Apple was explaining, set up the situation with how General Roger got created and the name and everything else. So uh, when Scully was in charge of Apple, so uh, following Jobs have been fired. Yeah, Jobs have been fired. And um, Scully was looking for the next big thing. Uh, you know, Macintosh sales were steady, but he was looking for his legacy project. And there's a guy there that was working that was called Mark Peratt. And he was walking around with some diet and a, a sort of bolsa model of, of what looks like the smartphone that we hold today. And John said, well, let's do it. Let's do it inside of Apple. And, uh, and Mark said, well, if we're going to do it, we can't do it in Apple. It will just be killed by, by too many cooks. And so I said, we need to spin out. So John gave us money and they rented a, a small little enclave just out in Mountain View. And they started putting together the engineers um, and the designers to kind of make the smartphones. So they had Andy Hertzfeld, they had Bill Atkinson, they had Joanna Hoffman, all veterans of the original Macintosh project. So explain who each of these people are, Sarah. Um, so Andy and Joanna really were the sort of core team that built the original Macintosh. Joanna Hoffman. Hoffman. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was played by Kate Winslet in the Aaron Sorkin movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so they were really were the original, and they, I, I view them as um, Steve Jobs' disciples. You know, they mm-hmm. were the people who took that learning and wanted to go when Steve was fired, they were sort of in exile and wanted to build the next great thing. And for them, it was taking the desktop and putting it in everybody's pockets. That was the vision. And Joanna and Andy were responsible for... 
let's give them their due at Apple. Yeah. At Macintosh. The Macintosh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, yeah. they were the rock stars. I mean, the, you know, people told us about that Rolling Stone article where they're seeing engineers mm-hmm. in a Rolling Stone magazine. So uh, Andy was the, the software wizard. Uh, Joanna was responsible for the international marketing. And then Bill Atkinson was responsible for pretty much like all the sort of middle lines of the Macintosh bill was kind of dominated the whole way through that machine. So he did all the stuff for quick paint, but then he also kind of worked on hypercard. So yeah, yeah, I mean, these guys were the sort of the originators and, and, and people really, really looked up to them. So when people found out that Bill and Andy and Joanna were working on this secret project, they didn't know what it was, what it, what it could be, but they just wanted to work with these amazing people. Right. Which attracted a lot of people, especially young, very young people very early in their careers. Talk about Mark Peratt. How did he decide to carry around this balsa wood model? Yeah, Mark Peratt was at the Aspen Institute and he'd been working um, on a thesis about the information age. He saw this was the next great age. What was his background? His back, he was an academic mm-hmm. and he was at Stanford. And uh, so he just sort of, he's a classic visionary. He sort of went into the visionary wilderness and came back from the mount with this, literally this spell book, mm-hmm. uh, an extraordinary large red tome full mm-hmm. of visions of the future in incredible detail, not just the smartphone with apps, but he, something he called FaceBase, which sounds awfully like Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, just it, it is today a remarkable document. I mean, mm-hmm. you talked about being a time traveler, that he went off into the future and he saw that everybody was interacting with this device that would enable you mm-hmm. to talk to anyone anywhere across the world. And yeah, I mean, this this reading it and him saying that we won't use names to kind of interact with each other, we'll interact through photos and it mm-hmm. will be called the FaceBase. I mean, I remember reading that when I first started working on the project and I was like, what? You know, it wasn't just that it looked remarkably like an iPhone. It wasn't that yeah. it had all the apps and all the economies that are all used through iPhones. Well, it looked it like a 10-pound version of the iPhone. Yes. Like <laughs> because yeah. of the time, because all the pieces weren't in place then. Well, and, I mean, to be fair, the diagram that he designed looked exactly like it an did. iPhone 6. But yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it, it, it took a little longer. So he, but he had no experience in running a company, correct? Mm. No, he was a broadcaster. He yes. was... Um, uh, you know, basically an academic. He, he, I think he'd done some CEO work, but much smaller companies, nothing of this sort of nothing size, and not not something that's built. So, know, how much money the did they get? Talk about the money, because this was sort of the great exploding startup. There were a couple pen computing companies and things like so that. So they raised finance uh, through two different ways. The first, which was uh, an idea that Mark had, was is that in, in order to create this infrastructure, you had to partner with the sort of global. Uh, industries at the time because you know this was a time before wireless mm-hmm. so in terms of being able to kind of get a device that talks to another device you needed to go to the yeah there's no companies. wi-fi so you have to go to the yes, biggest uh, and yeah. that's at&t and then they spoke to sony in terms of actually building it and then motorola for their own device and so with all these what are known as founding partners and there was 16 by the end of it that all put six million dollars into the entity that was their first way of raising finance but it was six million uh, total or each? six million dollars so it's a lot of money yeah but it was also at a time when it's like well we're running out of money let's bring in a new partner and then right. let's bring in a new partner because we need more money so suddenly this thing that felt very nimble and very agile of maybe just working with three partners had swollen to 16 right so that was one aspect of it and Can then i just say that my just have a quick story about my husband steve jarrett that i met at general magic he had one week where he sold, you worked there i worked there and he sold more than 30 million dollars of sort of shares but uh, in one week it was just crazy the demand and and it was unprecedented building this sort of collaboration of industry partners it had never been done explain what happened been what wasn't there. There was no Wi-Fi. There was no cell phones. No internet. No internet. 
What else was it? No touch screen. This is strange to me because in the film, this, this, these are your words that say this back yeah. in the film. Yeah. The other one that said, "So there's no Wi-Fi, and there's no phones." Yeah. It's like there, yeah. there, you know, I'll there was there was again. there was no there was nothing. You know, right. e- everything that we you know rely on today just did not exist. Right. You know, there's an incredible sequence where Megan Smith is diving through the cupboards and brings out this walkabout device that's huge, but she's talking about, you know, pressing on it and and, and saying that you need to ba- uh, balance the X and the Y axis to be able to create touchscreen because mm-hmm. touchscreen hadn't been invented before. Right, right. You know, so, I mean, everything that there wasn't... Wasn't. 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 So, so how did they hope to make a communications device when there wasn't a word? They were just using telephone, right? Telcos. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, taking you facts, taking facts and, you know, turning on its head and trying to work out. I mean, you know, software modem was invented there. I mean, there's a there's a line that Kevin Lynch says, Kevin's the uh, VP of technology at Apple. He's and he later went to Adobe and a bunch of places. Dreamweaver, you know, yeah, everything. Built a watch. Yeah. But I mean, he, he was saying, you know, normally you, you build on the shoulders of giants, but they were starting from the you know toes all the way up it, right. you know it, it was insanely ambitious yeah they were trying to do all this 17 years before you know the iphone 10 years before explain the name general magic why was it called that you, they called no. themselves magicians as i recall yeah so uh so the 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 rtc clark quotes is, is that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic mm-hmm. and then the second part of it was is that there was you know general electric there was general motors will be general magic will become a household name so mm-hmm. between those two phrases that's so they raised what 100 million that seems what is it more than two? no then they raised so there was the initial funding from the partners and then they went public right they were the first concept ipo mm-hmm. you know, basically they didn't have a product they just had an idea and they raised 96 million right in the first day on the stock exchange oh, yeah Without a product. Without a product. Right. It sounds like now. Um, so yeah. so they did this and were creating this product. Talk a little bit about the product development at the time. What were they doing? What were they creating? Because I have one of them in my basement. <laughs> what was it called? It was the Magic Leap, right? Magic. Or, Magic Link. Magic, Magic, Magic Link. Yeah. That's yeah, right. So there's Sony. There were different ones. Magic but Leap the, the, is the other overfunded <laughs> company, right? <laughs> Currently. Yeah. Good cognitive dissonance. Um so the product itself was a handheld with these, they basically had a metaphor of your desk and a street and using Su- Susan Kerr's amazing design. Susan, Talk, who say all, who Susan is. Yeah. So Susan is, I think, the most important designer of her age. She, you know, everything you interact with, pretty much she's influenced from mm-hmm. the original desktop icons on the Macintosh um, to, to the, I, Apple. Right? Yeah. Yeah, she worked at Apple with the original um, now at Pinterest. Macintosh team, now at Pinterest. Um, and she designed this beautiful world that you'd interact with, with all the things you'd need to do and communicate, make calls, make little beautiful notes. They designed emojis, like these incredible walking lemon emo- emojis that to- even today far exceed what we have on our phones, but that was sort of the genesis of that idea. So, so many important ideas came together in this one device. The problem with that device was, as you know, clunky and big and very expensive. It came, mm-hmm. it was $800 I think the original sales price and it was just and it was also too early in terms of adoption it was really just when people were starting some starting to use email which was what year this was this was 95 it went on sale and then they had these massive I mean some people had massive brick wireless phones but that was it right so they were just I had one of those yeah so they were too early in terms of the actual development of the product itself because everything was too expensive the components and therefore the price was too expensive and they also tried to ship perfection and they tried to ship perfection so I think that you know General Magic and other companies like like them led to this way that we develop today this agile method of um, development because you know they would work at this thing for two or three years and then da da 
And of course, if no one bought it, that was catastrophic, and particularly in General Magic's case. Yeah, because they didn't, because things weren't ready, because people didn't, there wasn't a use case necessarily. But I do remember the, if I don't think I can even turn it on now, maybe I could. It had the desk, and you touched the mailbox, and mm-hmm. you touched, what else was on there? There was definitely a, a desk of trash, there was, there was a, a phone. There was a Rolodex. Right, so Rolodex. Keep, keep track yeah. of all your uh, accounts. And then you'd move through into this other world, which was, Main Street, where you could go along and you could do online, what became online shopping. Right. Um, and, you know, and then there was another place that was sort of your hallway and that was your games room. It was an incredible feat of creativity and design. I mean, it still it was is. too much, really. And it was too much. I mean, I think that was that was the sort of the one of the roots of the failure was that they were so enamored with the joy and of making and of the mm. creativity without the sort of stick of Steve Jobs to come and say, well, that's all very nice walking lemons, but actually let's focus on shipping a product. And also, right. what, what one problem does it solve now? What one problem does it solve for people in this mm-hmm. year? Not not what they want in the future, what it's going to be their yeah. world, but what is the one thing that they solve? And and they did they tried to do a thousand things, right? Um, and Palm, yeah. you know, uh, on the other hand, did that. You know, they yeah. really focused in on that that contact piece, the very no, the, the the small part of it. Same thing with with the BlackBerry. Yes, the the, the communications part. Each each one of them that was successful took a small part yeah. of it and moved it forward. So talk about the people that were there. So it was not just Andy Hersfeld and Joanna Hoffman, but everybody. Piero Midiar. Piero Midiar. Yeah, Pierre is a particularly great story. So the story of Pierre is this this guy who was a developer relations guy. Yeah. Um, and we would walk past his desk, and there would be a big pile of what looked like checks or paper or envelopes on his desk and, you know, say, hey, Pierre, what is that on your desk? And he said, well, I got this little idea about, you know, connecting people on the internet via an auction. And, um, you know, everybody said, that's sort of odd. And in fact, he actually went to the um, general counsel and said, hey, Mike, I'm thinking about doing this auction thing. I'm thinking about spinning it out. Do you want to be involved? And Mike said, that's the worst idea I've ever heard of. You want to to trust people on the internet? You want to trust people on the internet? And that became eBay. And they gave away the... IP, right? Yeah. yeah. They, they, didn't, they didn't want it. They well, didn't, they... Mike, Mike did it twice, once for general magic's sake. And then and Pierre said, well, would you like to invest? And he said, yeah. I don't think you heard me. People do not, you should not be trusting people on the internet. Right, You're right. like, get out of here. Yeah. But I mean, you know, it, Chris now, McCaskill. Like Pierre owns France or something yes. like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. The, he's the seventh biggest GDP in the world or something. Right. No, but I mean, Chris McCaskill took him to an investor conference. And mm-hmm. Pierre, this was the time when he had a ponytail down to his he waist. Yeah. People were not taking him seriously. Like they left and said to Chris Mack, like, don't don't do that to me ever again. Right. You know? And lo and behold, you know, it became eBay. eBay. Yeah. All right, uh, Tony Fidel. Yeah, I mean Tony Fidel. I mean he he slept on the doorstep outside of General Magic. He he would not budge until someone was gave from? him an interview. He was from Michigan. He was from you know like he, I mean, he he was in the sticks in comparison to everybody else. But once he got the job, he packed up his his parents' car, put all his belongings there, and then he didn't move out of like Mountain View for about a year and a half. He just worked solidly because he was just blown away to be working with his heroes. Yeah. But, I mean it's a it's a who's who. I mean for for me. Right. So Tony, what happened to Tony? Well, Tony then uh, went to Philips and actually I think one of the most poignant parts of the film is when Tony had a vision for where the product could go. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he went on to make that at Philips, which was a critical success, but a commercial uh, failure. And then um, ended up with Steve Jobs calling him and saying, you know, I think um, I think it's time to do something. Tony always loved music. We should do something small that lives in your pocket, you know, that plays your hundred songs. 
and so and Tony okay. became co-inventor of the iPod and then the, the iPod, I- yeah. and then the iPhone, uh-huh. um, and then of course went on to found Nest and mm-hmm. now Future Shape. So, you know, to me, he represents sort of somebody who really took the lessons of General Magic. You know, right. really, if things aren't working, break it down, start again, iterate, iterate until it is perfect. Right, Andy Rubin. Andy Rubin was there, yeah. Explain who he is. And Andy Rubin, Android, um, the creator of the Android. Um, Rubin was an amazing character. He used to keep his Ferrari in my garage. And he, um, he he was always doing these crazy things like representing himself as the chief communications minister of the Grand Caymans. And mm-hmm. just there was always these massive, crazy pranks involving... But I mean, if you, if you, world, if you imagine global. Netherlands mm-hmm. and, you know, there's all these lost boys that are all just... And girls. F- and girls. But, you know, like, sorry, f- you know, finding themselves for the first time. But there is no parents mm-hmm. around. You right. know, it was just the most incredible chaos. And they're all just running and bouncing off each other to make... With ideas know, and stuff yeah. like that. And they did. I, was, I mean, I think it's important to note that they made huge breakthroughs, you know, whether it's the USB or the software modem or the mm-hmm. touchscreen or emojis. There's, I mean, there are literally hundreds of innovations well, that were developed. We're going to talk about this when we get back. It's sort of like uh, when you think about Xerox Park, but this was a version of that, yet another, I always call it like the Ur Company. And I always say it to people and they never have heard of it. So we're going to talk more about General Magic and the movie uh, these two have made. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back in a minute with Sarah Karouche and Matt Maud, the directors of the new documentary, General Magic. Today's show is brought to you by Simply Safe. It's important to protect your home with a home security system. But how many home security companies say, how can we protect your home and your privacy? That's what I love about SimpliSafe. They obsess over details like no one else. Here's an example. SimpliSafe has a camera you can control from your phone, but they want to protect your home and your privacy. So they came up with this brilliant idea, a privacy shutter for their camera. They spent months and months testing different metals and hinge designs. The result, an effective home security camera with a thin, lightweight aluminum privacy shutter that will work every time. It's that kind of attention to detail that sets Simply Safe apart and keeps your family safe. Simply Safe isn't just home security, it's home security done right. Check out Simply Safe today at simplysafe.com/slash decode. That's simplysafe.com/slash decode to learn more about Simply Safe today. SimplySafe.com slash decode. I'd also like to tell you about one of our other podcasts, Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who'd you talk to this week? This week I talked to Bo Burnham, who's sometimes described as a YouTube comedian or a stand-up. He's made a pretty amazing movie called Eighth Grade, which is not funny um, for the most part. It is about an eighth grade girl, and it is a sort of astonishing sort of presentation of what modern life is like for an eighth grader uh, in 2018. Um, You should go watch that movie and then you should listen to me talk to Bo Burnham about it um, he's a pretty intense and trippy and smart guy sounds great Peter you can find Recode Media on Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts we're here with Sarah Karouche and Matt Maud they're the directors of a new documentary called General Magic which is one of the most critical companies in Silicon Valley you've never heard of um, in fact it was the home of many of the people who went on to inv- invent things like the iPhone Android Nest, all kinds of things, eBay, Apple Watch, Apple Watch, everything pretty much. And it was by people who invented things already. So you started to talk about the things that came off of this product. It was a failed product. It really was. And very few people bought them. How many did they sell? Well, in the initial sales were at 3,000 and all of those were sold to friends and family. Okay. So the sales figures were absolutely abysmal. Right. 
Um, in terms of things they created, you know, as I said, USB, um, touchscreen, emojis, this, the list goes on and on and on. Um, but I think it was interesting. I think it was Nathan Meervold who ended up buying the IP from General Magic, um, mm -hmm. an extraordinary uh, catalog of IP, which is still, I mean, people still talk about it to this day. Right. And so what happened? Talk about what happened, Matt. Um, we kind of talk about this as being sort of like three things that kind of went wrong. I think one of it is, is that when you're sort of trying to uh, achieve perfection, you, you can't do it all at once. I think, you know, if General Magic had potentially iterated in the way that the iPod did, that they released a different iteration of the iPod every single year and just encapsulated new features and that six, seven years later, that iPod became the iPhone. General Magic could have quite easily have done that rather than just trying to put five years of work mm -hmm. just into one device. And then there was also the external pressures in which that um, John Scully, who was almost the father of General Magic in terms of spinning it out of Apple, um, sort of betrayed General Magic by taking some of the product thoughts, some of the marketing plan and, and releasing the Newton, which was a direct competitor mm -hmm. uh, to the General Magic device. Um, also a failure. Also a failure. Okay. And, then, and then the third thing is, is, you know, what killed them both, which is the World Wide Web. You mm -hmm. know, if you're trying to create a proprietary form of the internet in which you pay to use it, and then another thing comes out that is free to use, mm -hmm. you're on the losing side of an argument. Um, and, and that, you know, that, that decimated everything. And it wasn't just General Magic that made that mistake. It wasn't just the Newton, you know, Bill Gates Microsoft. was also trying to create, you know, their own proprietary form of it. You know, they, everybody knew it was They all coming. wanted a device, a personal device. Yeah. They were all thinking in those lines. Talk about the Newton, uh, Sarah. It was an Apple product. Yeah, it was an Apple product, and it was a little messaging product. And I know all I remember actually, as I, I was because I was at General Magic at the time, was the intense um, pressure that was caused by the fact that Newton shipped early, and the fact that people were so upset that it shipped. Now, but why was Apple developing as an investor in General Magic and also developing? Yeah. It's the unknown. I mean, the, the Apple only owned a small percentage of General Magic, whereas with the Newton, they owned it in its entirety. Right. But Apple, you know, could see across the board what General Magic was doing. Um, so, yeah, I think it was, it was really hard for some of the engineers, you know, for people like Andy Hertzfeld, whose friends, people that he'd worked with on the Macintosh, mm -hmm. were working on the Newton project. And, you know, that was, I think that was really hard for, for people like Andy and Bill to see people like Steve Capps working on their sort of direct competitor and that just to be completely surrounded in secrecy. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was a really hard time. I think it, it created a, a sort of kind of bunker mentality uh, and across General Magic to, to really sort of put their heads down and, and, and kind of fight for their lives. They are also caused them to go out early in terms of publicity because they had been in stealth mode mm -hmm. but that announcement forced them to go out um, with their own product yeah yeah, yeah. so oh, talk about the public offering so they go public why uh, they, they, need money. they needed independence so they created this sort of monolithic entity with all these different partners who were arguing I mean they were just natural many of them were natural enemies so it just became it was just too cumbersome it didn't work well these board of directors were the CEOs of these alliance partners yeah. so you've got Sony's president you've got AT&T's president all sitting on the board of General Magic all dictating to General Magic what they should be doing what they shouldn't be doing and they made the realisation that they, they needed to go public to cut the ties of this this really powerful board and that's what it was it was the, it was the, uh, the first concept IPO when but it was amazingly audacious when you think about it yeah because because they didn't have a product they did they just at that point they were just sort of in really early development phase mm -hmm. so yeah it was a, an audacious bold move and it initially paid off i mean it was a spectacular day when they um when they went public with their with their uh, rabbit logo yeah. they had a rabbit and a hat logo right yeah, yeah. A, a great susan care logo an yeah. iconic susan so care logo so what happened then 
I think, you know, as Matt said, they were too early and they just couldn't ship a product that people wanted in any meaningful volume. And I think fundamentally they lost heart. I mm-hmm. think they really did lose we'll talk heart. talk about that. I think they, um, I think when you work that hard and that intensely on something, and they worked harder than anyone I've ever seen. I mean, years and years. I'm, I mean, people pull on nighters at tech companies, so that's not unusual, but this was years of it. And people really gave up a huge part of their lives to do this. And I think at the end of the day, you know, Tony, as I said, came in with a, um, you know, said, look, this is how I think we can make a product that will sell. And I think, you know, Andy said, I think we're just too, there was a famous meeting actually where Andy said, we're just too tired and we can't, we can't pivot. Mm-hmm. We can't make that that shift, right? To the product, to the to another product. Yeah. So when, what happened? Then what happened? So there was a you know for us it's the beginning of the act three of the film in which there's you know there's a period of mourning you mm-hmm. know where it's 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 as palpable as grief and for mm-hmm. some people at General Magic that's a grief that they never recovered from but for the younger generation of magicians the people that had come to the company because they wanted to work with people like mm-hmm. Andy and Joanna and Bill. There was a time in which they were to kind of look at, you know, the mistakes that had been made, both as a company as well as themselves, but still taking the ideas of General Magic, the the, the original vision that we would carry around a device in our pocket. Mm -hmm. And each of those magicians took that kind of vision and and put it into their own domain. To their next thing. Yeah. And so for, say, Tony Fidel, which is the idea of being able to kind of carry something in your pocket that could put a thousand songs and so that you could carry around with everywhere, you know, became the iPod and you know all these different little iterations of people started to kind of spawn out you know I think for, for Kevin Dreamweaver in terms of being able to kind of have something that could be built by the consumer that was that was what he tried to do at General Magic that you would mm. create all of this developer access and then he took that and put it into Adobe into the creative world so you know you, you could just see different parts of the vision all kind of populating in different places with different magicians and now you look at it and the entire vision has been achieved right, by all these parts. magicians. Yeah, but by it's all almost their combined way of doing it. Yeah. So uh, they closed. They, they went, went bankrupt. They went bankrupt, yeah. And that was the end. Um, I do think it's important to note, though, that I think one of, we haven't talked about this, but I think it's really important, and I think the magicians would admit this, that, mm-hmm. you know, hubris played an element in it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you have to have this certain incredible faith in your abilities to pull off miraculous things and walk through walls when you're trying to do something as technologically hard as they were. And at the same time, there was a certain hubris, you know, where they weren't willing to look outside of their world and their bubble. Mm-hmm. And I think that really was instrumental in their failure. In their failure, not understanding the product. Not understanding the, the product and the climate and the time and not being willing to question the orthodoxy. You know, mm-hmm. you have to believe so passionately when you're trying to do those kinds of things. Right. But right. at the same time, you need to be able to retain the ability to take a hard, cold look. Right, and you I'm need watching. that kind of cold-hearted person right. or cold-hearted people to come in and say, it doesn't doesn't matter where the, the, the loyalty of, say, an AT&T and creating a proprietary internet, if the World Wide Web's right. come out, you have to what cut that part What was their internet called? What was AT&T? Interchange, right? Uh, interchange. Personal link. No, it was, so. and it was Interchange, oh, really? the original one, yeah. Because oh, well, they competed with AOL. Yes. And the cloud. They had a cloud. Yeah. We made the first video about the cloud. Yeah. Yeah, they had a concept. I remember Interchange only because the Washington Post was going to invest either in Interchange or AOL, and I kept urging them to invest in AOL at the time. They would have made billions. It would have been they would have had money for the rest of their lives, essentially. <laughs> but it was really they're like, no, you can't bet against AT and T. I'm like, yeah, you can. Like, it was an interesting. <laughs> and thus history was made. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I want to get to what impact it has in the next section. But when you think about like, so it goes bankrupt, and everybody scatters to the winds, essentially and goes to different places. They all go and do the great things they're going to do. What happened? So Nathan Milrow buys the IP, mm-hmm. and that's that. It's like a typical Silicon Valley 
Uh, you know, crack um, up essentially. Yeah, I mean, it is all gone. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think is one of the reasons I wanted to make the film is I'm really interested in a failure, having experienced uh, sort of a very personal catastrophic failure of a startup I was involved in. I was really interested in the idea of, first of all, the role of that in the journey, mm-hmm. um, the tech, the sort of the startup journey, but also um, in what it takes to bring big ideas to life. And I think we didn't want to make a film that was a in any way glorified failure. It is so painful mm-hmm. and it wrecks people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's an important note for me that this is really one of the reasons we wanted to make the film. But we also, it's um, Amy Lindbergh, uh, who works at General Magic, who's now at Docker. Um, mm-hmm. She talks about General Magic being a supernova. It's the mm-hmm. star that exploded, that created so much of what we use today. You know, there is a real happy ending to this film, but it's only from the people that have taken a long, hard look at themselves. Well, after the shareholders, they lost all their money. Money, yeah, right? they pretty much. Did anyone make money at General Magic? Uh, no, I don't think anyone walked away. Right, even no. the investors, they didn't. No, no. I mean, it was it was the brightest spark on you know on Wall Street for what, a while. What was it worth on Wall Street when it went public? Uh, I mean, they. It was. I remember that it was supposed to go at fourteen dollars a share, and it closed at thirty-two. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, it, so that that's that cleared million. ninety-six million in the first day. Right. So it was yeah. worth something, and then it just wasn't. So those shareholders yeah. lost their money. What happened to Mark? That's a really good question. I think you know of all the main. He's ca- in the movie. He's, he's in the. He mo- opens the movie, right? He's in the movie, and I think. Um, and closes it. Yeah, I think Mark went through a, a long phase of wilderness, um, and you know, came out the other side. I mean, John, I actually think one of my favorite parts of the film is when John Scully says, you know, where was Mark's second act? Because he really was the person who saw the future and all the products he so meticulously designed in his books really are mm-hmm. reality today. Um, so, But he's done some interesting things in terms of um, sustainable building materials. He's very interested in things green. He's very interested in... He's very active right now against Trump. So, yeah, but he never made an, did another company, right? I don't think. I think he, I don't think he had it in him. I think yeah. he gave so much, yeah. sacrificed so much, including just, his marriage. That's you know? just as a point of fact. His sister, yes, Ruth, um, CFO of Alphabet. Yeah, she's kind of a big deal. <laughs> yeah, she's a very big deal. Yeah, in Silicon So it's very interesting how all these things intersect. She was at uh, either Morgan Stanley, Morgan Stanley, or. At the time, uh, Goldman, Goldman, Sachs. Goldman Sachs at the time in London. I remember meeting her yeah. a long time ago. So she was a banker, essentially, for a long, long time. All right, when we get back, we're going to talk about sort of where it's going based on what happened at General Magic and where innovation is in Silicon Valley and how these two have made a movie uh, about one of the most important companies that never happened in Silicon Valley. I think we're going. I'd also like to tell you about my other podcast, Too Embarrassed to Ask. Every week we answer your questions about consumer tech and the week's news. This week I talked to Jaron Lanier, the author of 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts right now. Jaron, what are we talking about? Oh my cats. God. We're talking about cats and how to not go crazy in the modern world and how to not let the whole world fall into darkness and unreality just because of some stupid advertising network. Yeah, do we like Facebook or not? We we forgive them their trespasses. Um, we need to do I, something about it. I am in love with a future version of Facebook that doesn't exist yet that isn't based on manipulating people and getting them addicted. Nice. Well said. You can find Too Embarrassed to Ask on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Too Embarrassed to Ask. See you there. We're here with Sarah Karouche and Matt Maud. They're the directors of a new documentary called General Magic, of which I am in. And my ex-wife is also in it, Megan Smith, who is a big player there. She was a young person when yeah. she was there uh, working on what? What did she do work on? I forget. In it. her 20s. And she yeah. was on the hardware team. Yeah. And then she worked on the um, sales team. Right. Um, but yes, then famously went on to be a VP at Google mm-hmm. and um, start 
Planet Out. Right. Former CEO of Planet Out. And then she went to be the third CDO. Of the United States. Um, of the United States of America under have President Obama. We don't yeah. have one anymore. We don't have one anymore. Yeah. Um, but we will again. Yes, we will again. So let's talk about that idea of what, you know, these people that went off and they sort of got scattered to the winds and they all had impact in their own ways. And that, the real money they made was later. Was at Google or whether it was at uh, Nest or what, whether Apple. Um, and these ideas were br- brought elsewhere. Andy brought Android eventually to Google. Um, Pierre did eBay by himself. Everything went everywhere else. Talk about that idea of a seed, like a tree can die in Silicon Valley, yet it creates a lot of wealth that you don't understand. Uh, We spoke with a a Stanford professor called Fred Turner, and Mm -hmm. he made this incredible observation that um, engineers don't work for one company, uh, they work for the valley. Mm -hmm. And that if one company fails, they take all the ideas of that failure and then just iterate at a new company mm-hmm. and I really like that idea that the, the, you know, the, the huge microcosm that is Silicon Valley the lessons are just being passed on between different companies right. and I think that General Magic is a really good example of that that you know you can learn from a mistake somewhere else but be able to make it a success in another mm-hmm. company or in your own venture um, and I think that that supernova metaphor the, the redwoods that you're talking about you know you see that iterating everywhere across the valley but mm-hmm. you also see it iterating in, in nature and when we were making the film we also looked for these kind of examples in nature that would be able to kind of break up the monotony of like very urban landscapes so that we could kind of put some cinematic footage into it mm-hmm. and you know looking for those kind of nature examples in waves in forest fires in in redwood forests because yeah you you success spawns from failure talk about that sir i yeah i think that i would also like to say that the the mentor Mm-hmm. Um, the, the story of the master and the apprentice is also a big part of the film and a very big part of the valley and seeing, you know, that Steve handing his lessons to his disciples and then those lessons being passed down. I think that's a really important tradition in the valley that continues. And you see that today with, you know, all the magicians, Megan and Tony, and just that desire to pass the knowledge on uh, and, and, you know, use the, these lessons to solve some of the really big problems. You talk about this beautifully in the film. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the most important message in the film, which is how do we take this les- these lessons and how do, in bringing big ideas to life and apply them to the problems we really need to solve. And also not kill off ideas. Because literally when you look at it in retrospect it's really astonishing it really is the iphone it is the which came out in 2004 i think it's something like that 2007 seven. Oh, sorry that was seven even later that's uh, uh, facebook is 2004 um but it, there was uh it, 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 when you look at it it's sort of it is like looking at a, how did they when Le, you see those leonardo da vinci drawings of flying machines you're that's like oh, he's kind of got it it, it directionally for sure um, but the codex, yeah, that's a good yeah, analogy. Yeah, it's really kind of interesting when you when you look at those drawings, and even when you look at the device itself, it's sort of every idea is there, um, and it hadn't been there, by the way, it hadn't before that. I, I was there. There were street ideas. Apple had a street. What was it? it was run by Peter. Oh, I can't remember his name. But they had a they had an online service that looked like a town, and it beep beeped, and it was it was it was terrible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it was directionally correct, which was interesting. So, what do you imagine? keeps innovation going here? Because a lot of people feel innovation is gone, that these people have gotten older, that they've gotten too rich, they've gotten too, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that feel that innovation's moved to China um, or the enthusiasm has. How does that, because there are cycles of innovation. and I think that's true, but I also think that really the, 
the big lesson is the lesson that came from Steve, which is the lesson about that, you know, that, that these people don't do things for money. I'm sure mm-hmm. that I'm sure they like making the money. I'm sure that's not a horrible thing to do. But I but most or at least everybody I know in this context was driven by a vision and an idea. Right. And that very much came from Steve and Andy Hertzfeld talks about that. Um, and I think it's that passion mm-hmm. to create right. and make change right. that but drives where it. Where is that now? How do you assess it right now looking at Well, for me personally, um, where I see it blossoming in the most meaningful ways are in the digital health space. You know, I'm working at a company now, Chiron, that um, is using AI to read mammograms, um, you know, a state-of-the-art performance and mm-hmm. really, um, you know, it's going to change the work that we're doing and others are doing is going to change cancer diagnosis, for example. I mean, then mm-hmm. you look at the work that's being done in immunotherapy and cancer treatments. I mean, I think that's where I get most excited. And then there's a, and then the sort of the green tech space is super interesting. The ed tech space, I think there's so much happening. Um, and I continue to be optimistic and excited about the, about the innovation and the innovators. Mm-hmm. I'm not a technologist at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, kind of stepping into this world and and, and discovering as much as I have, um, it gives me a, a massive amount of hope for where we're going. There, there is a lot of fear and there's a lot of uncertainty that is surrounding us everywhere. But when I consistently look towards technologists and innovators within technology, it's the one thing that gives me hope because there are problems that people are finding solutions to and there's problems that I'm not even aware of that are people are finding solutions towards as well. So, um, you know, I think in terms of what is the next cycle of innovation, I'm not sure if it's known now, but I think it's being worked on and it's maybe just being worked on in a different basement or in a different garage that might not be here yet. These people have gotten to you because they've broken a lot of things. What do you think? I do not think. I think innovation is almost dead here. I think In the valley? Yeah. Well, yeah, it could be dead in the valley, but I think... When you see, there's there's Mm. indicators of innovation and they're always around tolerance, openness, Uh, fresh ideas, yep. willingness to change, and stuff like that. And then there's signals of decay. And it happens, there's a really good uh, author, the guy who did the something to happiness, the places where all the happiest people are. Mm-hmm. He also did where innovation thrives and then dies. And it's mm-hmm. always the same pattern in every place, whether it was Rome mm-hmm. or whether it yeah. was, that was an innovative place yeah. until it wasn't. And Venice. I mean, I think you've yeah. got, the, the the capital may move. Uh, sorry, yes. let me say, yeah, the, the capital will move once yeah. the cap once the actual like the name of the town has moved. But yeah. I mean, you know, Silicon Valley has it at the moment. They've they've, they've got the streets yeah. of the money, but the money will move depending on when. Not the just the money; occurs. it's the it's the inspiration. But and yeah, I, I mean, think I think they've broken a lot of things. Like, look at what's happening around Facebook now yeah. and Twitter and everything else. They have. You cannot say the damage they're doing to society is not significant. Yeah. You yeah. know, all of them. Yeah. And they're not aware of it. And meanwhile, they float away on their giant piles of money uh, with very little care or knowledge of what's going on or just, just the bubble. Like they're floating on something that doesn't exist. And now they're becoming painfully aware of the damage they're caused. I think my great worry is, is that, you know, the, the, technology is, uh, the technology is a signal, but, you know, wh- where that noise is coming from isn't coming from technology. Right. You know, Facebook is, is exacerbating the volume of it, but the problem's elsewhere. You know, like there's, there's, a, there's a worrisome trend about what's kind of happening with how, how news is heard, how news is spread. And, you know, that that's changed in my lifetime, the mm-hmm. idea of what a fact is and what truth right. is. Unfortunately, you know, Facebook is the one that picks up the speaker, but 
Well, they pick up the speaker, make the tools, and then don't monitor the tools they make. Yeah. So I, I, I give but them a little more sign, responsibility. They didn't, they didn't sign up for that, unfortunately. You know, like, and they should they have absolutely done. They should did. have done. No, but. they absolutely signed up for it. They created the platform that caused the problem. You don't think they signed up for it? No, I think you've got... Oh, they um, don't like the trouble they've caused yes. with the Frankenstein yeah. monster. Oh, I mean, the they, monster is killing the, people. The, so. the genie in the box, unfortunately. You know, like, yeah, but they, that's, no, nobody was checking it, and that's the problem. Except everybody was making money off of it. See, I don't, when you know... But you, you and I are talking about two different types yeah. of innovators. For yeah. me, I'm not looking at Facebook and saying, oh, wow, they're solving any sure, problem. Absolutely. A hundred percent. But I'm talking about that's what's, where is, where is the innovation? You're talking about healthcare, mm-hmm. that it's really happening and that they're, but then even attached to those, there's worrisome issues around privacy, around all kinds of things that we're giving too much of our, ourselves to the technology, yeah, which I think is, so. I think the real worry is that what is, where does humanity end and technology I agree. begin and things like that. And when you look at disturbing, uh, in the interview I did with Mark last week, he was saying, well, if I don't thrive, you're going to deal with China and they're not as good. And I don't think the, yeah. the I don't think the choice is Xi or him. Yeah. Like, I don't <laughs> like that choice. That's not a particularly good choice, but it, yeah. but it's true. It's that you have a, you have a country that's a surveillance economy, mm-hmm. essentially with values that are not ones that you think about openness, although very good innovation and very good. Well, strange. You know. So when I first started working on the film, that was over three years ago, and it felt like where we were going kind of politically was in a much more positive direction to where mm-hmm. it is now, you know, like Brexit has occurred, Trump mm-hmm. has occurred, nationalism seems to be something that is going like right. rife everywhere. Right. Um, you know, it, it, in terms of wanting to be engaged with films that kind of tackle those issues and asks those more difficult questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it feels like it's so, the time to be asking them. So two more questions for you. And where do you, I want to end on where you think that inspiration came from, from these people. But I want to talk, you had a lot of archival footage. Where did you get all that stuff? And who <laughs> didn't you get that you wanted for this film? Did you get everybody? No, we didn't get everybody. Um, Andy Rubin, we didn't get. Pierre Omaja, we didn't get. Um, Why didn't, didn't they talk to just Pierre? Just Bad Pierre. N- I tried. Timing. I think it was just, they're busy people. Oh, please. Um, the footage. <laughs> the, Andy's not that busy now, but go ahead. <laughs> the, well, the footage um, was the joy. I mean, it was, we had two, we had the original footage that I'd helped shoot mm-hmm. in 1993. And then we you had. You were doing that for what reason? To, to, because Mark had pulled in this crew led by David Hoffman to make a mm-hmm. film about something that he'd imagined because it wasn't real yet. So how could right. we help communicate this vision of the future? Right. And um, so that's where, where I started General Magic. We had that cash. And then there was two other inst- instances when we found enormous stockpiles of footage, one in Hawaii, 600 tapes in Hawaii, mm-hmm. and another one which was a smaller um, a sort of collection of footage, but so important. And in fact, we'd almost edited the film mm-hmm. at the point we got the second stash of footage. And right. that was like Christmas. And I still dream about getting footage. I still dream about finding boxes of footage. Ah. And it's so joyful. nobody had phones. Nobody was taking pictures constantly. No. So to have this footage is one of the, right. I think, one of the best People things about the film. Nobody had phones. Yeah. yeah. Nobody had cell phones. Nobody had cameras on yep. their cell phones for sure. Yeah, it was stills cameras, Polaroids and yeah, video cameras. And very know. few people really had video cameras. Yeah. Bill Atkinson had bought one back from Japan and he was filming. So that was this incredible inside of you. So we had this um, we knew what the story we knew the story that we wanted to tell, but to actually find the footage that supported the story, that was incredible. Mm-hmm. And as storytellers, how has that changed for you all? You're doing a documentary which is an old traditional kind of trope, right? Yeah. How do you think about this in this age? 
documentaries. Yeah. We, we, we viewed it as like a narrative film. We wrote it as a script. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then we have no... So we don't follow the conventions of a documentary film in the sense that we don't have a narrator. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just build those scenes. We build those archival scenes that tell the story. Right. And then we have our Greek chorus, which is, you know, you and John Markoff and Paul Sappho. And I think for me, that's such an important element in the film. It's giving us that perspective of, you know, what this story means. Right. But how, how, when you're making a documentary now, what's that like? It's hard. Changed. It's always hard. It's, it's like always it takes, been hard. Right? It takes yeah. years longer than you think. Um, well, I think every every film requires the same amount of people hours. When you're making a fiction film, right. you're doing it with 400 people, and so you, you condense all that time into eight right. weeks of shooting. But right. when you're making a documentary, you just you're doing right. it with ten other people, and yeah, it just takes a lot lot longer. But it was it was also a joy. I have to say, it was a total yeah. joy. Um, so many interesting moments. The interview with John Scully was a revelation. There were just so many moments that uh, it was a fabulous fabulous journey to go on. It was. Yeah, John Scully. This guy who always went left when he should have gone right, right? <laughs> kind of. But he owned it when we yeah, interviewed he did. him. He should have really own owned it, but he yeah. did. Yeah, and so yeah. many people don't. And yeah, I think that's actually true. that's my lesson from the film is that the people who really own their mistakes and their failures, right? Um, experience like some John, form of redemption. Yeah, I like John personally, but man, did he make some bad choices in his life? It was funny. Although that's good though, because it caused them to cause Steve to be angry to do it. You know, mm-hmm. created I, better things which you don't realize at the time. Yeah, you need some sort of. Not villain, I wouldn't call him a villain, but you know, you need some antagonist. Fight, antagonist that the hero has to yes. has to overcome. What lessons did you learn from the film? Uh, I think um, for me, I think you've, it's not enough to love the thing you're making. You have to love the people you're making it with. Mm-hmm. And when you're making a film, like for me, it's been three years of making the film. You know, there's there's always going to be struggles in creating something, but when you're doing it with people that you have their back, they have yours. It's it's an absolute joy. And there's a lot of parallels between General Magic the company and General Magic the film. And you know, one thing that is ever present in the footage is just this incredible companionship and friendship of doing something wildly ambitious with their tribe of people. Mm-hmm. And that felt amazing. Yeah, they're all still there. close. Except yeah, let's hope so. more people watch it than yeah, buy the actual yeah, yeah. Sony Magic Lake. Oh yeah, 3,000 people? Yeah, okay. So where is it going to be? You've been at all these film festivals. You're premiering it here in Silicon Valley. Where does it go? Yeah, so we had our world premiere at Tribeca, which was great. One of the top 10 films according to Time Out. Thank mm-hmm. you, Time Out. That was wonderful. And now really we, we're trying to decide what to do with it. I mean... Part of what we want to do is make sure, what, what I want to see is I want to show it at inner city schools. I want to mm-hmm. show it to kids and uh, I want to show it in universities. So that's one track. And then, you know, we hope the right distributor will pick it up and then it'll get seen by people. Because ultimately, it's not a film about tech. It's about a film about people who have a dream to change the world and what it takes to do it. Mm-hmm. It's the best part of Silicon Valley. It really is in a lot of ways. Um, and and then you you would you go to Netflix or what, what happens? What do you know? uh, Netflix would be great. Okay. Right, HBO please. would be great. Uh-huh. And somewhere where people will see it. And yeah, like yeah. I think um, I think you alluded to this question earlier, but I mean, you know, documentaries is changing. You mm-hmm. know, prior to the world of Netflix, it was very hard to watch documentaries. Yep. Only a few would make a theatrical yeah. release. Otherwise, you'd have to go down to your local blockbuster. I watched you know. one last night. The I world's changed now. Yeah. You know, the, and and it's what's great is you're seeing like the people with the money are seeing that documentaries are being watched, and there's a huge audience yeah, it's and a huge appetite. I was looking at all of them, and I think it was I, think I, I may have I forget where I got. It was, I don't know even how I pulled it in. It was on the Comcast thing. I'm watching the Fourth what? Estate. Yeah. the New York Times because I'm going to be writing for them so it's amazing I gotta say looking at reporters for hours and hours is not the most exciting the first episode just gripped me though I know but after a while you're like oh really oh, are, you, are you well in I just have done it it's just <laughs> they funny. just did the they just did one episode they premiered it at the Tribeca no it's good the it first episode's good. great but everything's a crisis hey. oh now he's doing oh now he's Charlottesville oh wait a minute now it's whatever like any Manafort and it just goes you're like well, okay yeah. that's so. the reason why well yeah 
and then they all go crazy and type, type, type. There's just, it's visually, it's, it's yeah. they're great people. By I can the get way. behind they're that. Fantastic people. In any case, Sarah and Matt, thanks so much for coming in and good luck tonight with your, uh, wait, it's Thursday night. Yeah, it's Thursday. Um, and where this film is going. Everybody should see it, mostly because I'm in it, but everybody <laughs> should see it because it really is a document to, to Silicon Valley and the people who made it and the stuff you're using today. It's a bright line between general magic and everything you're doing today. So you should look and see where you came from. If you enjoyed this interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, or just visit recode.net slash podcast for more. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. This helps them discover great interviews like this one. Now that you're done with this, you should check out our other podcasts, Too Embarrassed to Ask and Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. And thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.